Thank you guys for being here this morning again. Happy Father's Day to all our dads. Um, we joked earlier this week uh, with our, our team that helps to, to when we're planning the sermons and bouncing ideas off of each other, I was joking that we prayed for, for bad weather so that the guys couldn't go camping so that they could be here. <laughs> but that's just a joke, I know. I know you guys all wanted to be here regardless of, of weather. But I was thinking about um, Father's Day. I've got two beautiful girls, and um, they're, one's in elementary school, one's still finishing up preschool. Um, but I get the opportunity uh, most mornings, my schedule allows me to take them and drop them off at school. And most of the time we jump in the car, and the girls are really great at, you've got all your stuff? Yeah, Dad. You got your backpack? Yes. You got your water bottle? Yes. You got your lunch? Yes. Okay. And then we take off. But there was, there was one moment uh, a few months ago that the girls got in the car, and my older daughter, I was like, are you ready to go? I said, she said, yeah. I said, you got all your stuff? She said, yeah. I said, do you have your backpack? And she looked down at, at her feet. She's sitting in her, in her seat, and she looks down, and she goes, I don't have my backpack. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> and she jumped out of the car and ran back in and, and got her backpack. And, and the Lord was reminding me of that as I was putting together some verses for you all this morning because I, I was feeling this same, we are excited for what God has said he's going to do. We are looking forward to how he wants to pour out his spirit and pour out his glory even. There have been prophetic words about it, and we can kind of feel it getting nearer and nearer. We can feel it coming closer and closer. We can feel kind of the space between heaven and earth growing, growing thinner. And yet with all of that, it felt like there was this moment where we might have jumped in the car and said, all right, God, we're ready for it. And he says, okay, are, you know, are you, are you dressed? Yeah. You know, are, are you ready to have a great day? Yeah. Do you have your backpack? Oh, wait. <laughs> and we're running back in. And so I, I know that there are areas where so many of you are, are walking in maturity and you're doing great and you're discipling others and that's awesome. But my heart is for the whole of us that I just want to make sure that there, there are some areas that we haven't, that we haven't missed and that we're running, running in excitement saying, God, pour out your glory, but, but we haven't fully come into an order or into an alignment. And the reason I say that is because we look, as we look through the, the biblical stories, we take a really 30,000-foot zoomed-out view at the stories, we see this biblical pattern emerge where the Lord will, will put things in order or he'll raise up men and women who will put things in order, and it will create an environment where he can pour out his glory. And then when his glory hits, for the most part, there's incredible blessing with it. There's abundant and amazing things that happen when the Lord pours out his spirit and his, and his glory. But if our hearts aren't prepared, or if we choose not to walk into alignment, there's also sort of a, a, a judgment that comes with that. And I, wanna, I, want to, I want to talk about this in a way where we really have clear expectations of, of how the Lord comes but I don't want to scare us away. <laughs> Does that make sense? Let me, let me talk to you about it like, like with electricity. My house runs on electricity, and I'm so thankful for it. Uh, without electricity, whenever the power goes out, you quickly realize just how dependent we are on it, because it's like, oh, well, you know, computer's out, Wi-Fi's out, like, my phone needs to be charged, like, all these things that just all of a sudden don't open the fridge, like, the food might go bad, we don't know when it's going to come back on, like, can't cook dinner anymore because our stove's electric, like, there's just so many things that I'm dependent on electricity for, and I'm very thankful for the electricity. But there is a right way and a wrong way to interact with electricity. You know, don't put the toaster in the bathtub, don't stick your fingers in the light sockets, don't, there's some things, because if you do it wrong, like, there is a real risk of death. And 
And yet, no one thinks like, oh, well, electricity is bad. Like, we should get it out of our homes. Like, no one is boycotting and being like, electricity is bad. You know, don't let it in your homes. It's dangerous. Because we've, we've learned how to interact with it rightly. You know, there's, there's some building codes that prevent our houses from burning down because of bad wiring. There are requirements. There's licensing. There's permitting. There's inspections. There's all these things that kind of go into safeguarding. There's even plugs have big plastic labels on them that say don't do this near the sink or the bathtub or near water. There's GFCIs that protect, you know, as soon as there's a ground fault, it shorts the circuit. There's, there's breakers. There's all of these things like built into it because we've understood like, okay, there is if you interact with it wrongly, there's, a, there's a, a real danger to it. But it is so good. It is so worth it. And I think in a similar way, the glory of the Lord, when he pours out his spirit in a really powerful way, it is so good. But if we interact with it wrongly, there, there is a risk to it. And, and we don't often talk about the risks of the glory of the Lord because mostly we just focus on how good he is. But in his goodness, I think sometimes there is a delay in how he wants to pour out his spirit because he doesn't want to come with judgment. He wants to come with blessings. And so if our hearts aren't in the right spot, if we jump in the car and we don't have our backpack, we're not actually ready, then, then it would hurt us more than it would help us. And so my heart this morning is just to sort of talk about some things to encourage us where, oh, we're doing a great job of getting alignment in these areas, and to bring an awareness where hey, I want you to pray about what it looks like to be in alignment in these areas and see where we need to grow. And, and, and an encouragement for the whole body, that us as a church family, that we would do it well, but also an encouragement on an individual level. Because we'll look at some stories where the whole of the community did it really well, but one or two individuals did not. And, and there were some dramatic consequences for them. And so I don't want anyone to miss out on the good things that the glory of the Lord brings. I want all of us to move towards maturity, to say, okay, God, we've got everything. We are ready. Let's, let's go. All right, so that's, that's kind of that's where we're going this morning. Um, I'm going to blow through. I've got a ton of scriptures, and so if you've got something to take notes, I won't have time this morning to unpack every thought or to unpack every scripture, but if you just jot it down and then revisit it later this week, either in your quiet time or with your family, I believe that the Holy Spirit will really bring some more understanding. He'll really bring some, some revelation and anything that I've, I've failed to unpack well or, or maybe I've misspoken in some way, I'm sure that he'll correct it. All right, I'm sure that he'll bring, bring a better understanding around it. So let's just, uh, let's just say a prayer for our hearts and, and, and for my words. Lord, we ask that you would, you would be present in this. Lord, we don't want to rely on our own understanding. We don't want to assume that we know everything. Um, but Lord, we want to come with humble hearts. Lord, we want to be teachable. We want to be childlike. We want you, Holy Spirit, to instruct us this morning. So Father, I ask that you would fill my mouth and, 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 and shape my words so that we can bring honor to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So this biblical pattern, we see over and over again sort of a, a cycle or a pattern of order and glory and blessing and, and judgment. And we want to operate in the blessing side of it. We don't want to find ourselves in the judgment of it. But in the beginning, sort of Genesis 1-1, we see the earth was formless, it was void, it was chaotic, and then the Lord steps in and he starts to bring order. 
He starts to, to build everything, design everything, create everything, and then on the, on the seventh day, he rests and he called it good. So he put everything into order. And then we see that Adam and Eve are walking in the garden with, with the Lord. Now that has got to be a, a level of, of glory that I long to get back to. And that's what the, the redemption story of Jesus is, that someday we will return to that same, the Lord dwelling and walking amongst us. But, but right now we're not there yet. And so they were operating in a level of glory where they got to witness and experience God in a way that we haven't seen yet. And there was incredible blessings on that. They didn't have to work hard for the land. Food just sprung up. Everything was, was going pretty good. It was literally paradise. And yet there was one rule that the Lord had given them. Don't touch this thing. And because of the measure of glory and because of the closeness they were, when, when Eve took the fruit and ate it, and Adam ate the fruit, when they disobeyed God, there was some harsh judgment that came. They get kicked out of the garden, there's animosity in their relationship, uh, Adam has to struggle in the ground, and so this is, you know, I'm just, I paraphrased, I think, maybe the first five chapters of Genesis, but, but go back and, and look at this. There was this level of, well, there was an order, and then there was a glory, and then there was incredible blessings, but when they, when they were out of alignment, there was, a, there was a judgment. Now, I know I have missed God before. I know I've been disobedient in some ways. And thankfully, he hasn't hit me with the same judgment. And so what I want to articulate is, is there is this, I'm going to quote Spider-Man unintentionally, but with great power comes great responsibility, right? Like there is this, when the glory of the Lord increases, when his spirit is, is really being poured out in a powerful way, which is what we're, our hearts are, hungry for, there's just a higher level of accountability. There is a higher level of, he said this and we really have to do it. There's no more where it's like, well, he said that, but he didn't really mean that. Or, you know, yeah, he, he said don't eat the fruit, but we could probably just snack on it. He meant like, don't make a whole meal out of it, right? Like we can no longer take those, those uh, leniencies with his words and with his commands. And so, and so we see order, glory, there's incredible blessing, but when you disobey, there was a judgment. Later on, um, God creates covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless your, your descendants. The descendants are blessed. There's a ton of them. They're in bondage uh, in Egypt, and the Lord is ready to deliver them. So he raises up a deliverer. Moses says, let my people go. There's the ten plagues. And then they set out from there. They encounter God in his glory at Mount Sinai. It's incredible. They're given the law and there's a new covenant created. And in that, the Lord gives a very specific plan for how to build the tabernacle, the house where God is going to dwell amongst his people. So this is now kind of the first time that God is dwelling amongst his people since the garden. And they spend a year with incredible craftsmen crafting and building this tabernacle just the way the Lord described it. Okay, so there's an order this is how I want it built. They spend a year building it that way, and then the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Well, shortly after that, we read in Leviticus, there were only six people who were allowed to go into the holy place to minister before the Lord. It was Moses and Aaron and Aaron's four sons. They were the only ones who had been set apart by God in his order that they were allowed to minister before him. And when they did, there was still a lot of requirements and regulations and things that they had to do to, to come in in the right order. Well, two of the sons disregarded the order. And, and the Bible says that they burned an irreverent incense before the Lord, that they were careless about how they, 
how they came in before the Lord. And because of it, the fire of the Lord flashed out and burned them up and they died. Praise God for Jesus and his grace. I know there have been times where I've come to church and I've been a little irreverent. There, there have been times where I've come to church and I haven't fully committed to an, an order where I haven't given God the, the honor that he deserves. I've come in and I've made it more about me and my preference than about him. And I'm so thankful that fire hasn't flashed, <laughs> flashed down and consumed me and burned me up. But it is, it is a little bit scary to read that passage and to see even how Moses talks to Aaron. Because right after that, he tells Aaron, he says, you're not even allowed to mourn for your two sons. He says, I know this hurts. He says, but don't let the Lord catch you mourning because what he did was just and right. Your sons knew the, knew the requirements and they didn't do it. He says, don't even mourn for him. And that feels harsh. That doesn't feel like, you know, happy Father's Day, like God loves you. <laughs> like that. But, I, but I want us to think rightly about it. It would be a disservice to my children if I only told them, oh, electricity is great. It powers your tablet and makes the cartoons work and keeps the, the food from spoiling. And I never told them, don't touch it in the wrong manner or it'll hurt you. I would be doing them a disservice. And I think in the same way, like the glory of the Lord is coming and I, and I want all of us to experience the blessings of it, not the judgment of it. And so for the, for the people, they build the tabernacle. The Lord is dwelling among them. There's incredible blessings. For everyone other than those two sons who get zapped, everyone else is experiencing incredible blessings. Like there's incredible provision. Their clothes aren't wearing out. They are, they, are, they are continually witnessing this cloud of God's glory during the daytime, that it's not even too hot for them, right? They're, they're walking through, through the wilderness of the Middle East. Like that would be incredibly hot, but they've constantly got like a shade of, of protection from the sun. God is literally taking care of their every need because he's dwelling amongst them. And there's, a, there's beautiful blessing in it. So I don't want to just highlight like, oh, look how dangerous the glory is going to be. Like there's incredible blessings, but we have to do it in, in the right order. You move on from that. Um, David is coming to the kingdom of Israel. He's, he's the king. He's doing everything right. Well, he has one mishap, but we'll forgive him for that. But he's doing everything else right. He's honoring God. He's got a heart after God. He's writing psalms. He's establishing worship. He's got um, a ministry team that he is funding to minister to the Lord constantly. And he comes to the Lord and he says, I want to build you a house. He says, you're still dwelling in a tent, in a tabernacle. I've got this great palace. I want you to have a palace. And the Lord says, you can't do it, but I'll let your son do it. David had spilt too much blood. He had been a man of war. And the Lord said, no, I want someone else to do it. And so he said, I'll let your, I'll let your son Solomon build build my temple. So again, there's some sort of order to some of this. You can't just willy-nilly. David loved the Lord, but the Lord said, no, I'm going to have your, your son do it. So Solomon comes into his kingship. And he says, okay, I'm going to build a palace for the Lord. They, he has a whole team of, of a conscripted labor force. He's got you know, a whole, we'll call it an army of people and craftsmen who are working. And, and they spend billions of dollars over the next seven years to construct the most elaborate temple the world has ever seen. And it is beautiful and it is incredible. Seven years of establishing it in order, seven years of following the plans that the Lord had set out of measurements and dimensions and this area and that area, and seven years of, of putting everything in the right way that it should be. And then the glory of the Lord comes. And for the most part, under Solomon's reign, we really just see blessings. It says that um, 
Uh, silver was as common as stones and gold was plentiful. Like the whole nation was super, super wealthy because of incredible blessings of the Lord because of how they honored the Lord and they built this temple for him and his glory was there and it was really, really good. It's not until a, few, a generation later that things start to fall apart and then you see incredible judgment come in and, and the nation is scattered, they're, they go into exile, they're destroyed and the temple is ransacked. And so there's this, again, this pattern of order and glory and then either depending on how you choose if you honor god blessings and if you don't there's a judgment we see it with elijah at mount carmel and kevin shared that word from from first kings 18 that's exactly what we see he elijah rebuilds the temple or rebuilds the altar excuse me that's an order he puts things into order he calls the people he says hey you can't be double-minded either serve the lord or don't he's calling them back into order the glory of the lord falls and then the rain comes back. Rain that had been held back for three years. Now all of a sudden there is blessing. The rains are coming. And for those 400 Baal prophets, there's judgment. They all get taken into a valley and they're killed. Because it's like, oh, well, these guys have been lying to us. They're false prophets. Like, and so Elijah kills them. A clear like order, glory, blessing, and judgment. And so we see this over and over and over again. Even into Jesus' public ministry. We see this, John the, John the Baptist preaches a, a message of repent and turn to God. He's calling the people back to order. He's saying, wherever you've been, come back into alignment with God's word. Come back, repent, and turn back to God. Follow him. So there's an, there's an order. And then Jesus comes, and he begins his public ministry, and there's a glory. Everywhere that he's going, he's the visible image of an invisible God. He's doing signs and wonders and miracles, and it's incredible. There's blessing for every family that gets touched. There's, there's abundance of food. There is um, people being healed, like entire cities that their whole, their whole sick population is, is healed. Incredible blessing because of the glory of God. But then he says this in Matthew 11. It says, Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you, people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead. For if the miracles I did, in, I did for you had been done in wicked Sodom, it would still be here today. I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on Judgment Day than you. Wow, those are harsh words from a kind Jesus. But he's, he's, he had done so much and he had poured out so much glory. Capernaum was like his ministry headquarters and these other cities, the Chorazin and Bethsaida, were areas near there where he had done a lot of public ministry. They had seen him more than once. This wasn't just, hey, I was in your town for three days and you didn't, you didn't get it after three days. This was like, I had been in and around and doing miracles here again and again, and they still, they enjoyed, they enjoyed the benefits. They enjoyed when he multiplied the food. They enjoyed when he healed the sick. They enjoyed when he, um, you know, preached a good message, but they didn't give him their hearts. They didn't follow him fully. They didn't stop the things that they were doing and begin to follow him completely they just wanted the benefits. 
And so he says, well, these other wicked cities, these other non-Jewish cities are going to be better off than you because you saw the glory and the fullness and you didn't turn to it correctly. You didn't come into alignment or order to it and instead you're going to get this, this judgment. And so it, it cautions my heart of the, uh, to understand that the glory is so good, the spirit of the Lord is so good but if I disregard it, or if I do not regard it with enough honor, if I do not regard it with almost this healthy fear of the Lord, then I could position myself for a, for a judgment, or at the very least, a rebuke. You know, the, thankfully, like, Jesus didn't call down fire and, and kill those people right then. He was rebuking them while they still had a chance to turn and accept him. But I don't want to hear the rebuke from the Lord. I, I just want to position myself rightly. And, and that's where I want to encourage us for the most part is years ago, the Rock's leadership heard a word that said, prepare, prepare, prepare. And, and we were told that we were in a valley of decision. And we had this opportunity to either choose to follow God with abandon, to follow God at all costs, or to maintain status quo. And we chose to follow God, e even when it was costly, and even when we weren't quite sure what it would mean, and when we didn't have full understanding, we said, I think we want to follow God. Even though we don't know what all it's going to entail, if our choices are status quo or follow God, we're going to do this. And so we began on that journey. And since that time, he's, 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 he's poked at in, in, with kindness. He's, he's identified like things of like, okay, if you're going to follow me, I, I want you to follow me in this area. And he's touched um, how we've even structured our leadership. We've moved from just being pastor-led where, um, you know, we, we care about the congregation and we care about the people and uh, pastoral heart that really loves to recognizing that, well, maybe Ephesians 4 has some wisdom here where, where there's actually supposed to be a five-fold uh, leadership, where, where the church is actually built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, where there's an importance of, uh, of having an evangelist and having teachers and having prophetic voices and having someone that's building a region and, and not just working on keeping, keeping the, the fed full, but, but looking for the hungry. It, it's, uh, imagine it this way. Imagine it as a vehicle. The pastor wants the vehicle to have the nicest seats because he wants people to be comfortable. He wants leather trim and he wants wood grain and he wants good AC and he wants that. But if a pastor is the only person in charge building out this vehicle, there, uh, there is o there's not going to be any engine because the feedback from the engine is, well, it's too loud. It causes the car to shake a little bit. And, uh, and, and when it goes, there's, there's a lot of jerky so we're just gonna we're just gonna build a car that just has beautiful seats, just really comfortable. It's gonna have good lumbar. It's really comfortable. That's that's a pastor. And and you know what? Hey, I've got leather in my car and I love it. So I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying if we only have one aspect of leadership, we miss the fuller picture. But if we only had uh, an apostolic leadership, if that was the only piece of the puzzle, then we'd probably have a really strong engine in a car that had no seats. It's just a flatbed truck. And I say, well, people can just hold on because we're going. We got to build stuff. We got to tow things and there's a winch. <laughs> and if you only had the prophet, you'd probably only have a navigation system in the car. This is where we're going. We, this is the route we were taking to get there. This is where God wants to take us. And this is what we're going to do. But no real engine or chairs or seats or anything to get us there. It just, it's very forward. 
And so we begin to see that all of these pieces work together. The evangelist says, hey, what if instead of two seats, what if we had eight seats? What if we made more room for people to, to come in? What if we made it possible for them to come and, and on this journey with us? And so we, we, we've shifted. When I joined the church in, in 2011, we've made huge shifts. This is a totally different church. And it's because we've, we've recognized, oh, we, we get out of balance if we're just one thing. And so the Lord began to highlight that. He said, hey, if, if I'm going to come and I'm going to do what's in my heart to do in this region and in this house, I need to have a people who are submitted to my order. And so part of that was restructuring how we, how we considered our leadership, it, restructuring and, and recognizing the value in all the different pieces of, of God's leadership, not just one of them. So, so for many people, it felt like, well, they're, they're getting rid of all the comfort. And it was like, well, we're, we're adding an engine and some bigger tires and and, and we're adding more chairs and we're adding, you know, these different components because we want to build a car that, that will actually do what it's purpose to do. Not one that just has a good navigation or just has comfortable seats or only has a strong engine, but a car that really accomplishes everything that it's supposed to. So that was one area that the Lord's been moving and we've responded. And as a church, you all have, have either endured some of those transitions or you've come into it and you've recognized and you say, oh, this is the kind of, this is the kind of leadership I want to come under. And so I think that God loves that. Our worship has also shifted a lot. The Lord said, hey, I want to see a different order in your worship. We used to have a lot of songs that um, encouraged people, which is good. We used to have a lot of songs that made me feel nice when I sang them. We used to have a lot of songs that were tailored to our preference. And there's probably a time and a place for that. But what the Lord was putting his hand on and saying is, I want you to honor me in your worship. I want your worship to ascend to heaven and to glorify the Lord. And so there is, there is a long history of church using worship to help teach theology, and there's still a time and a place for that. We will use songs to help us understand the character and nature of God. But for the most part, our worship has shifted to this isn't about us, this is about him. And that's been, a, that's been a big shift that not, not every church is, is either willing to make because sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's long because it's no longer about me, it's about God. Sometimes, sometimes we just sang, sing the same thing over and over again, like we're not good songwriters because in heaven they just sing holy, holy, holy over and over again. And so when we fall into that, some people think, I don't, I don't know if I like that. And it's like, well, I, I'm sorry, this is where we feel God is calling us. He's put his hand on this thing. and He says, this is, this is what I want. This is the order I need to pour out my glory. And so I want to applaud you, church. You've, you're making this transition. We've made this transition in a lot of ways. And so, so thank you for that. Um, shifting from being a, a church where it's just a, a country club of like, hey, this is our membership and these are our people and this is our club and you know, these are when we have our meetings. Shifting from that to being a, a kingdom resource center where we are praying for people in the region, where we are partnering with other churches, and we're never concerned about, well, well what if our people go to them? Like, what if they're a better teacher than us? Or what if their worship's better? Or what if, what if they like those people better than us? Like, we, we're never thinking about that, because whether you're here or whether you're there, it's your kingdom. And so we've made this shift. But for some people, for some churches, for some regions, they might think, no, 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 that's my competition. Or they might think, well, we can't partner with them because then we're not focused on, on our thing. And, and we've abandoned that mindset. We said, no, we're not going to be a, a family that operates like that. We're going to be a family of families. We're going to be open to other, 
other regions and other churches and other, other ministries and other things, and we're going to constantly bless them. And so in this divine order, church, you've done well. You've done great. Thank you for, for moving with us. The Lord, yeah, good job. The Lord has highlighted, uh, you know, last October and the lead up to it, he highlighted the importance of communion. It was something we used to only do kind of once a month, if we remembered. Now we set it out almost every week, and we still try to remember it. <laughs> Sometimes we still miss it, but, but we set it out every week because we've recognized, oh God, like there is an importance to coming to the table of the Lord and, and feasting on his body and his blood and, and recognizing him in those elements. And there's, there's an importance that, that in the logical and in the natural, I can't fully explain it because I I mean, I see the box that the crackers come out of, and I know the container that poured the juice, and, and so I'm like, those are, we got those from Sam's, you know? Like, I know in the natural where that comes from, but, I, but man, in the spiritual, like, there is a power on communion. And so that's another place that, as a church, congratulations, you guys have, have done well to come into order on that, and I want to applaud. Like, I want, I want us, and this isn't just to build you up. This isn't just, like, you know, a bunch of high fives. This is really to look back and recognize what took Solomon seven years to build, the Lord has been taking about seven years to build here as well. This hasn't been overnight. This wasn't just like the Lord woke up one morning and was like, I want to use the Rock Church. And, and, you know, and our pastoral leadership team was just like, yeah, like, let's do it. And then, you know, here we are. This has been seven years of, of work and, and building and crafting and sometimes cutting away and and learning and experimenting and saying, okay, God, I don't know what this looks like. Like, we're going to go out, you know, we're going we're gonna to have a short service and we're going to send people out to the parks and to the streets. Like, I hope, I hope we're doing this right. This feels weird. But, but as a church, like, we've made these shifts together. And so our evangelism, our, our discipleship, uh, communion, uh, and then not most recently, but I think most powerfully, our prayers have shifted so much. We, we are a culture that prays more now. Both, and I've seen it both behind the scenes as a staff level. We aren't just opening and closing a meeting in prayer because we're Christians and pastors and that's what we're supposed to do, but we actually have a heart that wants to talk with God. And I see it in Sunday mornings too. There are some, there are some Sunday morning services where it feels like prayer is a bigger focus than the teaching or the worship. And I think that's good. I think when Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, I don't think he, I don't think he missed it. I don't think he was just talking off the cuff and was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. You know, oh, I misspoke. I think, he, I think there's something really important about prayer. And for us to, to come as far as we have, we, we're doing well. We're doing really well. So there are things that the Lord has been establishing an order on. There are things where we have been obedient to respond to him. And church, we're doing a good job. I say overall, I give us a passing grade. I said, but, I, but I, I want to be sure that we don't miss it in any areas. And so what I want to propose is, is maybe just three things that the Lord's been highlighting in, in my heart to communicate to you that we need to go and pray about. This isn't a, a condemnation that we're doing it badly. These are just three things that I think we need to, we need to take some time with Holy Spirit and say, Lord, is there, is there areas in here where I need to mature? Because it might not be, am I doing it or am I not doing it? It might not be so black and white of, well, I disagree or I do agree. It might just be maybe I need some more maturity in these areas. It, or, or maybe it's just a reminding. Maybe this isn't new for you. Maybe you've learned this a long time ago, but maybe this is just something, oh, you know what? I had forgotten the importance of that. 
So, so these are just three things that I felt the Lord highlighting. I felt him highlighting our, our finances, how we trust God with our money. Sometimes that's deeply personal, and sometimes that's the last thing that we give to God. We, we give him our salvation, you know, like our, our eternal, what, what's going to happen to us after we die. Sometimes we give him our future. Sometimes we give him uh, our, our kids. Sometimes we give him our free time. But often our finances is the, is the last thing we're ready to give because that's so closely tied to our heart. The second one is, is our time. The Lord's been highlighting to me uh, about the importance of the Sabbath. Under the old covenant, people had to do the Sabbath. It was a requirement of God. Uh, under the, and, it, and it felt like it was for the Lord. Under the new covenant, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he says that actually the Sabbath isn't for God, but it's for, it's for our benefit. And so he's been just reminding me that don't, don't um, conform to the pattern of this world. Uh, America's got this real hustle culture where we're going to work hard and we're going to work harder. And, you know, you talk to people and you ask them, how are you doing? And, and we say we're busy like it's some sort of badge of honor. Like I'm important because of how busy I am. And the Lord was just sort of touching in my heart. He was saying, be careful that you don't think kingdom looks like American culture. Be, be careful that you don't misinterpret my words and think, oh, well, I don't have to rest anymore because I'm actually working hard and, and my working hard makes me important and, and I'm important so I tell people I'm busy. And, um, and he was like, just spend some time with me and learn more about that. So that's, that's the second thing. So our finances, our time. And then thirdly, we, we prayed, a lot, prayed and worshiped around it this morning is, is holiness. I think the church does a really good job of understanding holiness as a position that we operate out of. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. He has made me righteous. Um, Jesus' body and his blood, it's washed away my sins. Praise God, his grace has made me righteous. But there is righteous living. So there's righteous position. I'm the positioned in right standing with God. And there is righteous living. I am walking in the commands of God. I'm obeying the, the way he's called me to live. I am integral and I'm upright and I'm honest and I'm all these different things that he's called us to be. And so I believe that there's a, there's a holiness that many of us are doing well on, but I, I don't want any of us to miss out on the blessing of God when his glory comes. So, so these are three things that I think that, that the Lord is still, we've done so well. I listed off, I don't know, seven or eight things that we've done really great on. Here's just three that I think we should revisit. I think we should spend some time with the Holy Spirit and ask him for a conviction in our hearts of, Lord, convict me of what is wrong and what is right and show me where I'm falling. And, and maybe there's some areas where I can improve a little. Maybe there's some areas where I need to mature some more. And so those three, our, our finances, our time, and, and holiness. And, and this morning, with the little bit of time I have left, I, I want to just touch on finances. That one's the, that's one that's always been a big passion of mine. And I, and I believe because it's so much more than our, our giving, it's our trusting. God doesn't want our money. He doesn't care about our finances. Your $100, what is that to, a, to God of the universe? Like he, he measures the span of the universe with the span of his hand. He, he weighed all of the, of the oceans, the water in them, and he told the shorelines where to go. Like he doesn't need anything. And so he's not looking at you like, oh, I need... I need your money. He's not that at all. What he wants is your trust. And it's so easy for us, especially in America, to, to trust in our finances. 
to trust in our 401ks, to trust in our savings, to trust in our, in our jobs and in our paychecks, to trust in what we are able to control. And he's asking us to live in such a way that we would trust him completely. And, and what that looks like for me is not a one-time decision. That's not, you know, one Sunday I muster up a bunch of courage and I say, okay, God, I trust you with my finances. And then like, I did it, I said it, I prayed the prayer, I'm done, I'm good. Instead, it is every paycheck. It is twice and sometimes more a month that I, that I have to say, okay, God, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. I'm going to trust that you are a better provider than I am. I'm going to trust that you are more faithful than I could be. I'm going to trust that you could do more with less than I could if I had all of it. And so he wants our trust because he wants our heart. And what we'll see later is our heart is, is directly linked to what we do with our finances. That we're, where we funnel our resources is where our heart follows. And, and that is both good and bad news. It's bad if we've been funneling finances in the wrong places because that means our heart went there. But the good news is we can move our heart by redirecting our finances. So it is, it is an encouragement of, oh, my heart can be wherever I put my finances. And we'll, and we'll see that. But let me, let me show you just a few scriptures that I want you to sit with and, and meditate on and think about. These are scriptures that have put a direct connection between money and salvation. And as I jump into this, I, obviously we know Jesus is the only way, right? Like it is, it is only by grace through faith in Jesus that we are saved. But I want you to see these scriptures, and I want you to recognize that, like, this is Bible. This isn't just, like, Andrew's fun ideas. These are, like, things that are written in your Bible that we have to wrestle with, that we have to ask God about, that we have to sit with the Holy Spirit and say, okay, if I know my salvation is assured through Jesus, but, but it, it looks like it needs to, it needs to manifest or, or become evident in my finances. My, my salvation should be apparent in my finances, is what these scriptures lead me to believe. So Deuteronomy 24, verse 12, says, if your neighbor is poor and gives you his cloak as security for a loan, do not keep the cloak overnight. Return the cloak to its owner by sunset so he can stay warm through the night and bless you, and the Lord your God will count you as righteous. That's interesting. Lord your God will count you as righteous. This is the same language in Romans 4, 3 that says, and um, for the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. That's the same count you as righteous. So there's a direct link between, you know, I took this guy's coat as a collateral for a loan, but now night's coming and it's going to get cold and he doesn't have a coat because I'm holding it. I should give it back to him. And the Lord says that act of generosity, that that giving that resource back to him, even when you have legal right to it because it was the collateral for your loan, he says, I'll count you as righteous. That's significant. Luke 19, verse 8. The rest of these I'm going to look at in New Testament because a lot of times people get weird about finances and they're like, well, that's Old Covenant. I wanna, I'll give you one Old Covenant, but now I want to look at New Testament stuff. Luke 19, verse 8. It says, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. It's interesting. Zacchaeus, you know the story, he's, he's small, he's climbing up in the tree. Jesus comes by, sees him, and is like, hey, I want to come to your house today. And everyone's like, him? Like, why him? Because he's a tax collector, and, and the, 
the reading between the lines is he's been stealing some off the top. You know, if you owe 15% taxes, he shows up at your door and says you owe 20%, and he keeps the extra five. And, uh, and so he's been actively stealing, and it's made him very wealthy. But Jesus goes to his house, and during their dinner, Zacchaeus comes under the sweet and tender and beautiful conviction of the Holy Spirit, and he jumps up and he makes this declaration, I will give half my wealth to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay them back four times as much. He doesn't say, wow, I recognize Jesus that you are the Son of God and the Chosen One and the Messiah of our people. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about his, his sinfulness or his need for a Savior. What he does is he says, I am going to give back to the poor and I'm going to repay who I've cheated. And Jesus says, salvation has come. There's this direct link between money and salvation in this passage. Luke chapter 3 has another one. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, Well, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised and ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into fire. So kind of a little fire and brimstone message here from John. And the people respond. They say, in verse 10, the crowds asked, what should we do? He's telling them to repent. He's telling them, don't assume that your salvation is assured. You need to do something differently. And they said, what should we do? And in verse 11, John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. It's not a bold, like, you know, it's not the normal salvation prayer that we like think of. And, and I'm not, again, like I'm not knocking that. I know our salvation is assured through Jesus and it's only by Jesus. It's not works. You can't give enough money to buy salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But it is so interesting that he, when they respond, what should we do to show that our heart is right with God? He says, be generous, give to the poor. Verse 12, it says, even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? And he replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. So again, a money thing. Verse 14, what should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. So three times with three different groups of people, he ties it back to their finances. Don't cheat people. Don't want more money. Be content with what you've got. Give to the poor. They're coming to be baptized. They're saying, we want to get right with God. And they say, what should we do? And he says, it's tied to your money. Because ultimately, he understood our money is so tied to our heart. It, we can't give God our full heart and still hold on to our money with a, with a tight fist. In Matthew tw chapter 25, starting in verse 31, Jesus is teaching, and, and he's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about the end of the age. He says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. 
Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will, will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. That is interesting. I would have expected, if, if, if the Bible just sort of stopped at places and then it was like, Andrew, what do you think? I would have been like, oh, well, he's going to separate, separate the sheep and the goats, and then he's going to turn to the sheep and say, come into your kingdom, you who are blessed, because you believed in my son, which is true. But what the scripture actually says, what Jesus actually taught was that it was linked to our, our generosity. It was linked to our resources. It was linked to how we used what we had in this life and who we gave it to, giving it to the least of these. And it's really interesting. Now, commentators explain that this is more, um, uh, this is more evidential than, than causative, meaning like it's not because they gave that they entered in, but it is because they were the type of people who were going to enter in, because they were following the commands of God, being obedient to him out of their incredible love for him, that, it caught, that, that the evidence of that belief in Jesus was that they were generous with their finances. And so I want to see that same evidence in my life. Okay, God, because I love you and I'm committed to being obedient to you, there should be an evidence of that even in my finances. Not just in my prayer or my quiet time or my Bible reading or my church attendance, but there should be an evidence of my belief in you, an evidence of my faith or an evidence of my obedience even in my checkbook or my statements, bank statements, or my pocketbook, my wallet, however you think about that. The verse continues, 41, he says, uh, the king will turn to those on his left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons, for I was, I was at your food bank and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into the, the trailers. I was naked and you didn't take me to the blessing room to give me clothing. I was sick or in prison and you didn't have teams of ministry teams that, that went and visited those types of people. And he will answer, I'll tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Wow. Our actions have to support our declaration of Jesus' lordship. It would, be, it would be wrong of us to say, God, we're, we're going to be obedient to you and how we structure our leadership and how we worship and how we pray and, and how we work with other ministries and how we do all these other things, but don't touch our finances. I'm going to throw a few more verses at you guys, and I, and I hope this doesn't... My goal isn't to upset you. <laughs> My goal is not to try and get more money out of you. My goal is to, I want you to think rightly about this because I don't want us, if we're, if we're thinking about that biblical pattern of order and the glory of the Lord, the Lord is bringing us into order because he's going to pour out his glory. We are jumping in the car and he's saying, hey, do you have everything? And we're saying, ah, either yes, we do, or if we don't, this is our chance to run back into the house and grab that backpack and come back and say, yes, God, I'm doing everything right so that I can receive the blessing of your glory, so I can operate in the blessings that come from your outpouring. James 1.27 says this, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and for widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. 
I think for the most part, churches do a pretty good job of the second one, refusing to let the world corrupt you. You know, I think Christians more than any other people homeschool and pull children into private Christian schools, and, and we, are, we are cautious of what we watch on TV. We do a pretty good job of not letting the world corrupt us. But I don't think we've done a good enough job of caring for orphans and widows. I think in America, the, the government has, has stepped in to do that, where historically that was the church's role. But because people thought um, differently than the word of God about their finances, because they thought it was theirs and not a portion of it belonged to the Lord, churches didn't have the resources to take care of orphans and widows, and so the government stepped in and said, okay, well, we'll do it. And we've seen that with mixed results. I, I, I don't know that that's all, I don't think that's the best system. I don't think that's God's highest for our culture or for our people. I think that he would love to see the church do that again. But I think that takes real resources. Like that takes real dollars. That takes real housing. That takes real mentors and mothers and fathers and people saying, I will give up my free time. I'll give up some of what I thought was going to be my retirement. I will give up some of this thing because we have a biblical mandate that that is pure and genuine religion. 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Man, that's a verse, right? (laughs) Verse 10, it continues. It says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So we saw how they were positively linked that when you gave, it was linked to, to your salvation. It was, it was the evidence that you were truly believing in God. But we also see the opposite, that when you are trusting in mammon, that spirit of, of money, or when you have greed in your heart, you wander away from the faith. So it produces the opposite results. In Mark 10, Jesus encounters the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler says, hey, what should I do to have eternal life? He recognizes that Jesus, Jesus has an understanding beyond the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elite. He recognizes something unique in Jesus, and he asks him, hey, what should I do to have eternal life? And Jesus, Jesus explains to him, oh, well, you know, follow the commandments, do the things in the law. And he says, I have, I've done all those. And Jesus looks at him, and it says this, it says, verse 21, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done. He told him, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and then come and follow me. Now Jesus has made a few individual come and follow me's statements up into this and that produced most of the 12 12 apostles. The rest of his come and follow me's that were given to huge crowds had had a different, different level of engagement. You know, it... I wonder, the story continues, it says, at this the man's face fell and he went away really sad for he had many possessions. But I wonder if he was being offered apostleship. I wonder if he was being offered a seat at the table that he could be one of the disciples, like one of the few, because there was many. But I wonder if he was getting a personal invitation, but because Jesus knew what it was going to cost, he needed him to to know that he couldn't keep his wealth and and be at that closeness, at that level with Jesus. Because the next verses after this, Peter's like, Jesus, we've given up everything. Like, we've got nothing left. We've gone all in on you. And he tells them that's great. And he talks about the rewards that they'll get for that. But I just, I wonder if sometimes there's an invitation to a, a, to a closer relationship with God. But for some of us, we've let money stand in the way. 
Now, I don't think for all of us, all of us are, are required or asked that we'd give away all of our possessions. I, I, don't, I don't know that that's the call for all of us, but I, what I can see in this story is that, is that there is a level of, there, there are situations where money can prevent us from closeness with God. There are situations where our love of wealth can prevent us from following Jesus. And I want to caution us against that. Matthew 6, uh, verse 19, Jesus is teaching and he says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves could break in and steal. But instead, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. That's the NLT. Other translations say, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And so this is what I was alluding to when I was saying that our, we, can, we can choose where our heart goes. When we give to God, we can put our heart closer to God. And when we refuse to be obedient to God, we can put our heart there too. But we get to choose by where, where and how we give. And then a few verses later in verse 24, same chapter, Matthew 6, it says, No one can serve two masters, for you will either hate one and love the other, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Money itself is not bad. It's the love of money. Money is just a tool, but greed is a heart position, right? The love of money, serving or being enslaving to money, that's very different than having resources and using them for the kingdom. So I'm not, this isn't a, a wealth is bad message. This isn't a riches are awful. But this is a, we need to do a heart check. Because I can't look at the size of the, your house or the year of your car and tell you if you're doing it right or wrong. It's something that the Lord has to, has to speak to you about. So we have to have personal conversations with the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, how, how am I doing personally in this area? Am I establishing trust with you every month by saying, okay, God, this portion belongs to you and I'm going to give it to you regardless? Or are we casual about it? Are we casual about it in the same way that Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, were casual when they went before the Lord? I think that there's enough scriptures in the Bible that talk about our finances that we should not approach it casually. So, so this is a very individual thing that we have to talk to God about. But, but can I give us a... Um, kind of a, a loving, loving little, little kick. Uh, this is kind of a, come on, like, get out there, you can do it. Church is a, it, this is a very an, an individual decision, but church as a, as a family, I think we need to do better in this area. The accounting team can tell when we remember and when we forget to pass the buckets. They can, they can tell if the service got going really good and, and we're like, oh, we don't want to break the flow. Our giving should not be under compulsion. You should not give because something went by you, because offering plate, bucket, whatever you call it. You should not give out of compulsion. You should come into church knowing this portion of my finances belongs to the Lord, and I will give it whether a bucket passes or not. I will give it if I have to chase someone down after service and say, this is the Lord's and it belongs to him. But if we come in with a casual attitude of, oh, I'll give if I think about it, I'll give if they ask me to, I don't think that's right. And I don't say that because the church needs your money or because, you know, I'll get a big bonus if you do. That's not, 
It's not this at all, guys. Please hear my heart. I, I want the best for you. And I believe the blessing of the Lord that comes when his glory pours out is going to be so worth any financial price you have to pay. And any, any sacrifice that you think you're making, I have seen the, the favor and the faithfulness of the Lord time and time again that I can stand and I can say, oh, you might think you're going to go without, but you will not. He will be more than faithful and he will be more than good to take care of you. But, but we, should be, we should think about it rightly. We should be serious about it. We shouldn't be casual about what belongs to the Lord. And, and you'll have to pray and ask him what, what that is. In the Old Testament, there was a 10% tithe, and then beyond that, they gave free will offerings, they gave vow offerings, they gave peace offerings, they gave sin offerings, and there's, I don't know, probably a handful of other ones if you go through Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. There's, there's quite a few different offerings in there. And the Lord is really detailed about what each of those should be. Now, thank God we're not under the law. I don't have to bring two doves every time, you know, I do something wrong. Like, I'd, thank you, Jesus. He's, his blood and his grace are, are better than that. But his Holy, Holy Spirit is still wanting to touch our finances because of how linked it is to our heart. And he's still wanting to touch our finances because he wants us to see him as provider, not our employer or our own giftings or skills. He's still touching our finances today. And the requirements may be, may be different, but I would encourage you to ask the Lord what it is for your life. I'd, I'd encourage you to ask him, okay, Lord, where, where is my faith re- requiring this? Because I think part of it is a, is a faith. The, the more, the more, the longer experience you have with God's faithfulness, I think the more he requires of you. I think if you're brand new to this and you're like, oh, it is a huge, a huge faith step to give maybe just 1% of, of my income. If that's where you're at, I think the Lord wants to meet you there. I don't think he wants to keep you there, but I think he wants to meet you there and start you there. But I think as we walk with Jesus, as we have history with the Lord, as we have seen his faithfulness and his provision, I think it would be wrong of us to, to think that he still wants to keep us at 1%. I, I don't think, that just doesn't seem generous to me. And if we want to be a people who are like God, if we want to be a people who are as generous as he is, I think there might be a, a little bit more that, that we could do there. So three, you know, seven or eight areas where the church, you guys are doing incredible. Three areas where I think we should pray about, we should improve. Maybe, and, and maybe it's not all of us. Maybe you're doing fantastic in these areas. But, but I don't want anyone to miss out on the goodness that God's going to pour out. And so this is, this is my loving kind of father's heart for you guys of like, hey, let's, let's make sure that we are doing all this and doing it well. Is that good? Amen. Amen. Would you all please stand and let me, let me pray for you as we close? Father God, we love you. We love you. And we believe that there should be an evidence of our love and obedience to you. And so, Lord, whether that's with our time, whether that's with our finances, whether that's um, with our behavior, uh, our, what, the actions we choose to do, the music we choose to listen to, the movies we choose to watch, the places we choose to go, even what we eat and drink and how we do it. Father, I pray that all of it would honor you. Lord, this isn't about legalism. This isn't about we have to perform good enough so that you'll love us. No, this is because of our great love, we want to honor you with every part of our life. 
not just with our prayers, but, but with every part of our life. We want to consecrate what, what our eyes see. We want to consecrate what our hands do. We want to consecrate and set apart, make it holy unto you, our finances. We want to consecrate our time, that it would be set apart, that we'd be a, a people who are different than the world, that we would understand the kingdom nature of how we could do more with less because we chose to give it to you and honor you. Lord, it, Lord, I pray that this would be done all out of love, not out of obligation, not out of compulsion, not because someone's twisting our arm, but because we recognize that you're worth it, but because we recognize that you're good, that even when you ask for it, it's for our benefit. It's not for you. It's not not because you need it. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd move with with a, a sweet conviction on our hearts. Show us where we're excelling well. Reward us for, for where we've done a great job, where we've been obedient. And, Lord, speak to us with that tender, loving kindness of where we need to improve. Lord, I pray that we would have a, a right fear of you. I'm not afraid of electricity, but I'm not going to touch a hot wire. And so, Lord, I don't have to be afraid of you, but I have to have a reverence towards your presence. I need to have a right honor about your glory. And so, Father, help us to position our hearts correctly where we would go low, where we wouldn't walk around in arrogance and say, oh, yeah, his glory is going to come and, and I can do whatever I want. Oh, Lord, guard our hearts against that. Guard our minds against that, that we would walk with, with carefulness, that we would have a healthy caution around the glory of the Lord, that when it comes, that we wouldn't touch it. Even when we think we're doing a good thing, that we wouldn't reach out and try to steady the ark, but instead we would, we would discern and say, oh no, this requires a, a higher level of regard. This, this requires a higher level of respect. This requires a, a healthy fear around the awe and power and majesty of our Lord. And so God, we choose to see you rightly, high and lifted up. And so, Lord, if there's any areas in our lives that are out of order, Lord, we give you permission to correct those. If there's any areas that's, that are just a little out of alignment, maybe we haven't failed, maybe it's not that we're doing it bad, but we just, a little tweak is needed. Lord, we pray that you would come and tweak our hearts. Lord, give us a grace that empowers us to do better. Not a grace that is a license to sin or a license to miss the mark, but a grace that empowers us to meet your right standard. Lord, we say that all of your ways are perfect. Your ways and your plans are, are, are the best. They can't be improved on. Whatever you say about finances or how we spend our time or what we do or don't do, it's perfect. And it doesn't need our improvement on it. And so, Lord, we choose to come into a, a submission to your authority, to the authority of your word. And we, and we choose to be a people who live according to your commands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you all very much. I hope you have a great week. Remember to call your dad. Love on him. We're going to have some ministry teams up front. If you need prayer for anything, if you want someone to believe with you in faith, they're going to be up here to love on you in that way. Hope you guys have a great week.